Now, as we begin the tenth chapter, I'm reading, "'Verily, verily, I say unto you, "'He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, "'but climbeth up some other way, "'the same is a thief and a robber.'" Now, very frankly, this is a very remarkable statement our Lord is making. You see what had happened in the last chapter. This man, born blind, had been excommunicated. He'd been put out of the temple and put out from the worship of God in the temple. And they now have challenged the Lord Jesus, and they actually are rejecting him. And he made it very clear that they had rejected him. And they asked him the question, are we blind also? He made it very clear that they were blind. Now, he puts forth, actually, his credentials here. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold. Now, we need to notice very carefully what he means by the sheepfold. The sheepfold is the nation Israel. And what he's saying to them is that he came in by the door. Because he goes on to say, "...but if he doesn't enter by the door, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep." Now, this is a tremendous claim that he's making here, and it's this, "...Israel is the sheepfold." He came in by the door. Others have had to climb over some other way. What does he mean, he came in by the door into the sheepfold? Well, he came in legally. He came in in fulfillment of prophecy of the Old Testament. And he came in in a very orderly manner. Now, you'll notice that he was born under the law in the fullness of time, Paul says in Galatians, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, he came in according to the Mosaic law. And you find out that when he was eight days old, they took him to the temple. All of that was fulfilled, as we saw back in the Gospel of Luke, that this was a fulfillment of that which made him born according to the law. But not only that, he came in the line of David, according to prophecy. He was born at Bethlehem, according to prophecy. He was not only in the line of David, but he was born of a virgin. And by this time, he was a stem out of Jesse. It could say David, but didn't. Isaiah said, a stem shall come out of Jesse. Because, you see, when the Lord Jesus was born, the line of David had dropped back to the level of peasant. Jesse was a farmer down in Bethlehem, raised sheep, by the way. And David was the king. His son had the anointing oil poured on him. Now the kingly line. Now the Lord Jesus is born in the line of David. But by the time he came, he's a stem out of Jesse. He was a carpenter, wore carpenter's robe. But all of this is in fulfillment of prophecy. 
He said he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he came in by the door. He was the Messiah. And he came in by the door. And the one that enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Now, anybody else would have to come over the fence some other way. No one else could have fulfilled prophecy as he did. No one else could have the credentials that he did because he has said that the works that I perform, they testified to him. And a little later on, he made that very clear to them. He says in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now, what are the works? What's the proof? He's born in the line of David, according to prophecy. He was introduced by John the Baptist. His teaching, his life, and his miracles all bore a testimony to the fact that he had come in by the door. What he's trying to say, they are classifying him as a thief and a robber who comes over the fence. And he makes it very clear that he's come in through the door and that anyone else that comes in will have to come in over the fence. This is a very strong claim, as you can see. Now he says, "...to him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice." And he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. Now, he's making it very clear here what he's doing. He says, the porter has opened the door. Who's the porter? The Holy Spirit, if you please. The Spirit of God came upon him. And everything he did, he did by the power of the Spirit of God. To him, the porter opened it. Now, he says, the sheep hear his voice. What he says is, I have come into the sheepfold of Israel, and I have called my sheep, and they have heard me. They responded. Now, in the last chapter, it was, you see, these religious leaders, they're blind. They said, are we blind also? He said, you sure are. You're more blind than this man, because he's had his eyes open, both physically and spiritually. But now, not only that, They don't even hear his voice. They not only can't see, they can't hear. The sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. And I love that. You see, when he came, he called Simon Peter, and he said to him, Your name is Cephas. I'm going to change that to a stone. I'm going to call you Peter, which means you're a stone man. That's the kind of man you're going to be. And he said to these men, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They followed him. And we're told many believed on him. He called his sheep. And his sheep responded. And he calls them by name. Now, let me just intrude with this thought. I believe that when the Lord Jesus calls his own out of the world at the time of the rapture, the dead in Christ will be raised. And also, the living will be caught up to meet him. I believe that that shall will have in it every man's name. I think I'll hear him say personally, Vernon, Vernon McGee. That'll be wonderful. He knows my name, you see. And he'll call me at that time. And he'll call you, and you'll hear your name. Remember it says in Revelation that his voice was like the sound of running water. Now, have you ever 
listen to running water. I don't mean in the bathroom. I mean out in the country at a waterfalls. I remember the first time that I went to Yosemite. And I hope you won't think that there's something wrong with me when I tell you this, because I don't think that there is. But I went up to Yosemite Falls to take pictures, and I was intent on getting pictures. And I got them and started walking back. And I kept thinking I heard somebody call me by name. And I looked around. I stopped two or three times. It sounded like... And you know, all of a sudden it came to me, his voice is like the sound of running water. And I heard my name. I wonder if you've ever had that experience. If not, you test it out. Because if no one else has had this experience, I better do a little investigating because it's a very peculiar thing. But I believe that we'll hear his voice. I think that's what he's saying here. Now, he not only calls his own sheep by name, he leads them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice." Now, again, this is something very important for us to see, and that is the sheepfold of that day. I spent some time looking over a sheepfold near Bethlehem, and that sheepfold is still being used today. Now, a sheepfold was where shepherds came and put their sheep in by night. Then the porter had charge of it, and then shepherds would go somewhere If there was an inn there, they'd go and spend the night there. Then they'd come out the next day, and their sheep's all mixed up with somebody else's sheep. And there's no brand in that day, no marking on the sheep. So how did they get their own sheep? They called them the name. And what would happen? A shepherd would come out of a morning. He'd come down to the fold, identify himself to the porter that was there. But the sheep didn't have to have him identified. They knew him. That is his sheep. And so he'd start out over the hill or down the branch that was there. And what would happen? His own sheep would come out of the fold and follow him. They knew him. And they didn't drive sheep in that day. They led their sheep. He says, my sheep, they follow him and they know his voice. That is of the shepherd. Now he goes on to say, and a stranger will they not follow but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Now, today, a great many people are all worked up because of the cults and isms and the confusion that there is. And I agree with that. And I'll admit, at times, it disturbs me. But I like to come back to a passage like this. The thing that he says here, that his sheep hear his voice, and they know him, and that a stranger they'll not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Now, I believe that you can fool some of God's people some of the time, but I don't think you can fool even some of God's people all the time. I think that they get wise to this. I think I shared a letter with you from someone who'd been in every cult That was imaginable. I didn't read the list. I'm not permitted to on the radio. But very candidly, there was at least a half a dozen different cults and isms this part has been in. Then one time they hear the Word of God taught. And what happens? They hear His voice. And you know, 
they happened to be one of the sheep. And so these folk, when they heard the shepherd's voice, they followed him. Now, they thought they heard him before, but they didn't. And they knew that. They know their shepherd. It's amazing. That's one of the reasons I love to teach the Word of God, because it binds to you all of God's children. Now, I've had the experience of being a pastor for about 40 years. And I've taught the Word of God everywhere I've been. And that's all I claimed to. Someone called me on the phone and wanted to give me credit for other things. They wanted to list me in some sort of a brochure that's been gotten out, and they wanted to call me an author and everything else. Now, all of that was good, by the way. But I told them, no. I said, all I do is just teach the Word. Just teach the Word of God. And I found out after all these years that his sheep hear his voice. They'll follow him. The others... I worried about them for a long time, but I got so I don't mean to be hardballed, but I don't worry about them. They don't hear his voice, and the reason they don't hear his voice, they're not his sheep. His sheep hear his voice. Oh, say, this is precious, friends, and it's quite wonderful. And it draws you to those people. It's so wonderful to get a letter from somebody. I got a letter from a professor in a university, state university back east. He said, I started listening to you, and I thought... Because of your accent, you're a screamer. And he said, I kept listening, and first thing I knew, you were giving out the Word of God. And then he said, I began to listen. And now he supports the program. He said, say, this is it. Well, may I say to you, I've found that to be true. His sheep know his voice. They'll follow him. Now, will you notice what he says here? Verse 6, he says, this parable spake Jesus unto them, and they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Now, I said at the beginning there were no parables in John's gospel. And I'm of the opinion somebody that's listening in today will recall that, and they'll say, well, wait a minute, you made a mistake. No, I didn't. This, frankly, is an unfortunate translation, because this is not the word parabole for parable. This is paroimia and really means a metaphor, or we would say today an allegory. And our Lord didn't give in the Gospel of John, he did not give any parables. He actually gave an allegory, and there's quite a difference. He said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I'm the water of life. You see, those are metaphors that he used. They were not parables. They were actualities. And it was just a figure of speech to let me know something about God and to let you know something about God. And that's why he did this. It was to throw light on the subject. But if you are blind, as these men were, they wouldn't see it, of course, at all. Let me put it like that. This allegory spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. You see, he said in the 13th of Matthew, you remember, he says, let him that hath ears to hear, hear. But he says that it's quite possible to have ears and you won't hear a thing. And there are a lot of people got ears, but they don't hear this is the Word of God. That's the important thing. How do you hear it? Do you hear it as the Word of God? And our Lord was quoting Isaiah when he said, By hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and ye shall see and shall not perceive. You see physically, 
but you don't really see it. You don't understand it. That's the thing that he's saying unto them. Now, will you notice as we move on here, then said Jesus unto them again. Now, he'll give them another allegory. Listen to this. I'm the door of the sheep. He's the door of the sheep. Now, he's moved in. He talked about the door into the sheepfold. Do you see what he's saying now? He says, not only did I come in through the door, but now I am the door. And in the 15th chapter of John's gospel, he's going to say, I'm the genuine vine, that before the vine was Israel. But now it's not a relationship to a nation or a religion, but it's a relationship to Jesus Christ, a personal relationship. So here he says, I'm the door of the sheep. That is, if you're going to come in now to the fold, why, the fold is not just the nation Israel. The foal now will be where his sheep are brought in, and he'll make that clear just a little later. Now, will you notice, all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. That's a great comfort to know today that though we have these cults and isms, God's sheep just won't permanently follow that. One day they're going to get out of it, and I've observed that over the years. They may get in a cult, but they sure will get out of cult. And I've seen multitudes of people that have done that. And that the sheep won't hear them permanently. They just won't stick by it at all. They know that they're not listening to the voice of the shepherd at all. Now he moves around and uses another figure of speech here. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Did you know that this was the verse of Scripture that John Hancock was brought to Christ by the use of it? That is, one night, John Witherspoon, one of the great preachers of the 13 original colonies, he was one that signed the Declaration of Independence, and it was his speech that caused John Hancock to say, hand me that document, I'll sign it. And he signed it first. And that's the reason we say today, put your John Hancock right down here. That means you sign it. He went one night to hear John Witherspoon preach, and he took as his text this verse, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. And so on the way home that night, John Hancock was meditating on this text. As he thought about it, he says, I've always thought John Witherspoon was a very intelligent man. What said the night is ridiculous. How can anybody be a door? And how can you go in the door? Well, he arrived home and he had a big bunch of keys and he put the key in the door and he pushed the door open and stepped in and then from the hallway into that great living room. And when he did, he'd come out of the darkness into the light of his home. And when he stepped inside there, having opened the door, he said, now I see. And the family that was sitting there, they all began to laugh. They said, sure you see. you out in the dark. Now you've come in where you lie. Oh, he says, you don't understand. He says, you know, Jesus is the door. And I never saw that before. And the key is faith. And just as I opened that door, with the key that I had, and I came in out of darkness and the light, 
I've done that now. I see that Jesus is my Savior, and I'll accept him. I'm the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. But the thief cometh not, but for to steal and kill and to destroy. And listen to him now. I'm come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. You know, friends... I think the test of a church or an organization or a radio program, and it's the test of this one, is somebody getting rich out of it. Is somebody living, using again a common colloquialism, living high on the hog. That's the reason that I urge all people that come to Southern California, all of our listeners, come by and see our headquarters. We're delighted with it and we're proud of it in the right sort of way, I hope. But you will find we're not living in lush quarters. They're comfortable, they're adequate, but they're not lush. And I want people to know that because you see today there are a lot of religious organizations. May I say, that's the test. The Lord Jesus said, The thief, he cometh not but to steal, to kill, destroy. He doesn't come to help people. But he says, I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Isn't that wonderful? Now we have verse 11, and the Lord here says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Now we have here a second allegory, or a metaphor, if you please. And the first one was back up in verse 7, where he said, I'm the door of the sheep. And I'm the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Now he says, I'm the good shepherd. And how in the world can he be the door and be the shepherd at the same time? Well, as we said that ordinarily the porter or someone employed for that purpose had charge of the sheepfold and he would sleep right in the doorway. And actually, there was no door that would swing on hinges that had a padlock on it. But the man himself would go to sleep there. And the Lord Jesus is not only the door to the sheep, but he's also the good shepherd. He's the one that stays in the doorway. He is the door that opens to eternal life. He's the one that protects his own. And he's also the good shepherd. And that's very important to see. Now, you will find out that he is also called the Lamb of God. And how can he be the Lamb of God and at the same time the good shepherd? And I think this is one of the most wonderful metaphors that's used in Scripture. may sound like it's a mixed one, but it certainly is not. Now, he is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. You see, he came down and identified himself with us, and we are called sheep. But he is the shepherd also. And the fact that he became a sheep emphasizes the humanity of Christ. But the fact he's a good shepherd emphasizes the deity of Christ because he alone was worthy and was able to save No other human being could have. He had to be God. So he says here, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. 
And you'll notice that he's called the good shepherd. He is also called the great shepherd of the sheep. In Hebrews, that great benediction, now may the great shepherd of the sheep. Then Peter in his epistle called him the chief shepherd. Well, we have him in Psalm 22 as the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. In Psalm 23, that's so familiar to us, he's the great shepherd of the sheep that is able to keep his own. And then the chief shepherd, he's Psalm 24, where he's coming again. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you will receive a crown rejoicing. These are wonderful pictures that are given to us of him in the Word of God. Now he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that's an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. You see the difference between the Lord Jesus and any other religious ruler or leader, for that matter, is that the other religious leaders, a man have had to do something for them. They did very little for humanity. You take any of the great leaders. Buddha never did very much for his followers, and Muhammad actually never did very much for his followers. And these modern cult leaders, all they do is get rich. They don't seem to do very much for them. The difference between a hireling and the shepherd is the shepherd is the one that gives his life for the sheep, and then he protects the sheep. Verse 13, the hireling fleeth. Why? Because he is a hireling, and he careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known of mine." Two things that are important. The good shepherd knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. A wonderful relationship. Paul said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. To know him and to know him is to love him, and he knows his sheep. What a beautiful, actually a beautiful picture that we have here of him. And you have that picture actually given back in Ezekiel in the 34th chapter. There is a wonderful picture of a shepherd in verse 11 of the 34th of Ezekiel. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he's among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I'll deliver them out of all places where they've been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. Then he goes on, I'll bring them out, and I'll feed them in a good pasture. And verse 15, I'll feed my flock. What a wonderful picture of the shepherd, you see. He is the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. Now notice he says something else here in verse 16 that we need to remember. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Now the fold is Israel, you see. And he says, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one. Now it's not fold here. 
because there's more than one fold, but there's only one flock. And that's what it should be. There shall be one flock and one shepherd. And today he is calling out a people, both Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, bond and free, male and female, black and white, people from all nations, out of every tongue and tribe and nation, and there's going to be one flock, one shepherd. Then he says, all this is in the will of the Father. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. And friends, the Father loves him because he died for us. We ought to love him because he died for us. Now listen to him. He's making something very clear, not only to them, but to us today. He says, I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now, if you'll note this very carefully, that at the trial of Jesus, and we called attention to it in Matthew, he was in full control. You see, he set the time of his death. He said he would die during the feast day. Now, his enemies, the ones who arrested him, said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. He was crucified on the feast day, just as he said. He is never more kingly than when he approaches that cross. And he's in absolute charge. If you read the gospel records aright, you'll find out he wasn't on trial. The Roman government was on trial. The nation Israel was on trial. And by the way, you were on trial and I was on trial. And we were condemned to die in him, for he died for the sins of the world. He didn't have to die, friends. He did it willingly. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He had power to lay down his life, had power to take it. No man could touch him unless he had his permission. Now, this, of course, caused people in that day, especially the enemies, to raise some questions. Verse 19, that was a division, therefore, again among the Jews, for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a demon and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now you see that what he's saying here goes back to that incident of the fact that he opened the eyes of this man born blind. And the crowd there that day said, Well, a demon could never have done what he did. And there was a division, you see, among the people. Some thought he was a demon. Others thought he was the divine Son of God, that he was the Savior of the world. And there's always been that division. Many believed. Many did not believe. When Paul went to Athens, some believed. Some did not believe. And when I preach, I find out some believe and some do not believe. When we give it out on radio, some believe and some don't believe. That's the way it is. <laughs> and I'm not to expect it to be different than that. Now, will you notice in verse 22, "...and it was at Jerusalem the Feast of Dedication, and it was winter." I think this is one of the most vivid verses in the Scripture. It was at the 
feast of the dedication was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now, this is the picture that's given to us here. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, actually, he had not revealed publicly that he was the Christ. You see, these religious leaders, we're told they received him not. We've been told that. Now, they say, if thou be the Christ, you tell us. Now, he had not publicly declared his Messiahship up to this point. Actually, he demonstrated in the triumphal entry. But he had to his disciples, you will recall, made it clear who he was. And actually up in the Samaritan country, which seems very strange indeed. You remember when those first men came to look for him or to follow him? And you remember Andrew went back and told his brother, we found the Messiah. And that was the same thing that you'll recall that Nathaniel said, Thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel, you're the Messiah. And then you'll find out that up there in the Samaritan country with that Samaritan woman, that these men that came down, they said, Now we believe not because of thy saying, the saying of the woman, but we've heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And then back at this blind beggar, You'll remember, we called attention to it. Jesus said unto him, 937, Thou hast both seen me, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he revealed himself. Now he declares his Messiahship. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now he offers proof that he is the Messiah. His works prove it. That's the proof. And, well, what are some of them? Go back and look at it. He was born in the line of David, according to prophecy, introduced by John. His teaching demonstrated it. His life demonstrated it. And his miracles demonstrated it. The proof that I do is the thought here in the word works. This is the proof that I am who I claim to be. Now he says, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Let me turn this around and put it like this. Because ye are not of my sheep, ye believe not. Rather, the thought is that ye believe not. And because you believe not, that demonstrates that you are not my sheep. Now, he gives the positive side of it. Will you notice this? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now we come to this wonderful section here. You see, the brand on the sheep of ownership is obedience. It's the one they follow. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Do you want to know whether a person is saved or not? Well, you tell me what his relationship to Christ is, and is he obeying him? You see, all of his sheep have a hearing aid. That hearing aid is they hear his voice. That is the blood-tipped ear that we saw about the priest. When he was dedicated, had blood put on the tip of his ear. He had a blood-tipped ear. 
and the Spirit of God has to open, because eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, that blood-tipped ear that the Spirit of God can speak to. And they had a hearing aid. And in Proverbs 20, 12, it says, "...the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord hath made even both of them." Well, that's quite a wonderful verse, you see. He says, "...hear my sheep, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me." And friends, it's just as simple as this. If a shepherd came out of the morning and came to the fold... And then he began to call, sheep, sheep, sheep. And he started up the hill and say there were 500 sheep and a hundred of them came out and followed him. Do you know the conclusion I'd come to? They're his sheep. And I'd come to another conclusion. The 400 stayed in the fold were not his sheep. And that's true today. It's just as simple as that. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Well, what about these sheep? Listen to him, and I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Can you notice what he does? He gives unto them eternal life. And friends, when he gives to them eternal life, that means they don't earn it. They don't work for it. He gives to them. And if it's eternal life, it's forever. And if it plays out next week, it wasn't eternal life at all. You see, the shepherd will die, but will the sheep be in danger? Well, they were scattered, but he gathered them all up again. And he says, they'll never perish. Neither will any man pluck them out of my hand. But why? I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Never perish? That's what he said. Backslide? Yes. Perish? No. The sheep might get in a pig pen, yes. Stay there, no. Pig, no. Never a pig. Sheep they are. And no one can pluck them out of my hand. No believer destroy himself. But an enemy may get him. May I say, may come in like a roaring lion. No, he won't. No man will pluck him. No created thing pluck them out of my hand. He says, my father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. This is wonderful. I, many years ago, preached on this passage when I was a young preacher at a church court meeting. I was asked to preach on this subject, and it was out in West Texas. And a big, long, tall Texas rancher, the kind that you think of when you think of a Texas rancher, very fine Christian, by the way, came up to me and he said to me, young man, that was a pretty good sermon. <laughs> and you know that was a long time ago because he called me a young man. And he said that was a pretty good sermon. But he said, you don't know anything about sheep. And then he told me, he said, I have 2,000 sheep. And he says, there's somebody watching them all the time. He said, you know, if two little sheep go over the hill, and they're not but a half a mile from the flock. He said, they're lost. They cannot find their way back by themselves. And he said, the only way in the world they can be safe is for the shepherd to be there. And he said, you know, a wolf might come up. Now, he says, he'll kill one of the little sheep. Now, he says, you'd think the other one would be smart. And he'd say, 
Well, while he's my little brother, I'll go back over the hill and join the flock. Well, he doesn't know where to go. All he does is go, meh, and he runs around and waits so he can be dessert for the wolf. Now, this is what he said. He said, look, he says, you know, a sheep is stupid. A sheep does not have sharp claws. He can't defend himself. And he doesn't have fast legs. He can't run away from danger. He says, if a sheep is safe, it's not because the little sheep is clever or smart. It's because he has a good shepherd. Isn't that wonderful, friends? May I say to you, we say today that he gives to us eternal life and we'll never perish. Somebody says, you're bragging. Oh, no, friend, I'm not bragging, except I'm bragging about my shepherd. I got a wonderful shepherd. He said he won't lose any sheep. He started out with a hundred sheep. And he's going to come through, not with 99. If one of them gets out and gets lost and even gets in the pig pen, he's going out and get him, bring him in, because he starts out with 100 sheep, coming through with 100 sheep. Now he says in verse 30, I am not my father, but I and the Father are one. He claimed to be God. And so much so that then the Jews, which are the religious rulers, they took up stones again to stone him, you see. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do ye stone me? You see, friends, he had his credentials there with him. And those credentials were the works he had done. And as I've indicated before, there were not two or three blind men. He didn't have a healing line. Friends, there were literally thousands of blind that had their eyes open, thousands of lame that were walking, Oh, I tell you, the evidence was there, and they wouldn't accept it. And they answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because thou being a man makest thyself God. Now, there's one thing for sure. In that day, those who heard him understood that he made himself God. So when the liberal comes along today and says, Well, Jesus never said he was God. Well, may I say to you, the liberal's the only one that's misunderstood him. And I can understand that because the liberals misunderstood so many things. Now, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You're gods. If ye call them gods unto whom the word of God came and the Scripture cannot be broke, say ye of him. The point, of course, that he's making here is that if they were on a high plane, he's not saying here that mankind are gods. That's not it at all. And when we get to the Psalms, where that's quoted from, I go into a great deal of detail there. Now, I want to finish this chapter. "...say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God." The rest of this chapter, he claims to be God, by the way. He is who he said he was. What think ye of Christ? is the test. Try both your state and your scheme. You can't be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. Now, we have come to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And actually, you've heard me say this before, that we've come to the high point. I mentioned that, you'll recall, back in a preceding chapter. Well, it was the high point up to that point. And the gospel of John, to me, is like climbing up a mountain. And each chapter brings you a little higher than the other place. And that 
preceding chapter was the high point up to then. But we're not at the top of the mountain, and I don't think we're at the top of the mountain here in chapter 11, but we have come to a high point. And if you will look at it from this viewpoint, why did John write this gospel? And it might be well for us to state again why he wrote this gospel. He says, "...and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name." And by the way, that's found in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And we go back to the very beginning, and it started off, "...in the beginning was the Word." The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word was made flesh. And when he was made flesh, why, we saw that by miracle and parable and discourse that this great thesis has been sustained. Now, the supreme question that can be asked is this, can Christ raise the dead? And that's the big question in any religion. And friends, that's the big question in this life here. We speak today of the fact that death is a great mystery. Well, this life is a great mystery too. And this life is practically meaningless if there is no resurrection of the dead. And for a Christian, we are of all men most miserable. The question that you'd ask of any religion, does it have power over death? Now, liberalism has long ago thrown out the miraculous. And they used, I think, the most illogical argument, anything in the Scripture that's miraculous, that doesn't belong there. Not because of any scholarly reason, but just because they don't believe in the miraculous, you see. Just like a man eating fish, and he doesn't believe in bones. And when he comes to a bone, why, he ignores it. He doesn't believe that fish have bones. He's in trouble. In fact, he might even choke to death. And there's the miraculous in Scripture. You can't throw it out, and you can't get rid of the bodily resurrection. They explain it away, of course, in many ways. There's a substitute teaching, a synthetic doctrine, and you hear it stated like this, I believe in a religion of the here and now, not hereafter. It's pie in the sky, by and by, and we don't go for that. We want a meat and potatoes religion. We want one that's practical and not theoretical. We want one that has practice in it and not doctrine. And you want to know something, that's the kind I want also. But my friend, I want to hope. You see, you get a lot of benefits right here and now. But the greatest benefit is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And it seems to me to be very practical to ask the question, will the dead be raised? Life is so brief. Life's little day compared to eternity is nothing. And with thousands of boys that have had their lives snuffed out on every battlefield of the world, that's a good question. Will the dead be raised? And I had a funeral of a very wonderful Christian man 
And there sat his wife and his mother. May I say to you, they found the resurrection very practical. And when you go out and stand at the graveside, I tell you, if you haven't any hope, you're whistling in the dark and singing in the rain, and you're giving out the blues, you're singing the blues, and all you've got is a rock festival, and I think it's rocks in your head when you get to the place. You have no hope after this life. Now, isms, they make some startling claims, but as far as I know, only one or two of them have ever claimed they can raise the dead. The only thing is they never produce the body, the corpus delecti. Now, the resurrection has to do with the raising of the body. The Lord Jesus, when he sent his disciples out, they were to heal the sick, but they also to raise the dead. When they healed the sick, it was the body in that day, and when they raised the dead, it was the body that was raised. Now, they promised so much here, but nothing hereafter. And that's like giving a baby a rattle to play with while he's in this life. May I say, it reminds me of something that, very frankly, I'm afraid a great many people are taking today, and that's an airplane trip. And they tell me that it's more difficult to land a plane than to take off, that actually a novice can take off, but it takes an expert to land a plane. And liberalism and the isms remind me of taking off in a plane with a pilot who takes you up into the clouds and gives you a few thrills. Finally, when the gas runs low, he calmly informs you that he's never landed a plane. In fact, he cannot land one. It was a nice ride while it lasted, but you know it's pretty important to be able to come into the airport, friends. And by the way, I'd ask you the question, you're flying high today? Well, you're going to land one of these days. You've got someone that can bring you into the airport. It's very important. And the supreme test, therefore, is life after death. Personally, if I was looking for a religion, I'd want to know what a religion has to say about this. And I'd want a modicum of proof. Now, there are in the Gospels three recorded instances of Christ raising the dead. Actually, both Peter and Paul raised the dead. And the great hope of the Christian faith is the resurrection of the dead. Of the three instances in the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, the first three give about the little girl raised from the dead. Only Luke gives about the little girl and the widow's son of Nain. And now only John gives the account of the resurrection of Lazarus. If you put these three together, you'll find out the Lord Jesus raised the little girl, and that is a child. And then he raised a young man, the widow's son of Nain, and then he raised Lazarus, and he was an old man, I think. And so you have our Lord in the resurrection. We'll have no separation, generation gap of children being sent to one department, the young married sent to another, the old people put in a retirement home. They're all going to be raised together. And I would say hallelujah to that. We talk about the breakdown today of races. There's a breakdown today in age groups that I think the church has promoted that is almost sinful. But you see, I'm a retired preacher now, 
And I don't know why a retired preacher becomes an expert on everything that he didn't do himself. Well, let me begin reading now. I wanted you to have this introduction to this very marvelous chapter. Now, notice, I'm reading John 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. You notice that it's the town of Mary. And when you get into the home, which I think we'll be visiting, it was the home of Martha. She had charge of the kitchen and all of that. But the town belonged to Mary. Those are different gifts. Some women are given a marvelous gift in the home. When you talk about a woman's liberation movement, I don't know of anyone that's the big boss any more than a wife and her mother in a home. She has full charge of the kitchen and of the rest of the house. And she hustles you out of the kitchen, makes you get out of the ice box, and tells you to get outside. She's going to vacuum the rug and get out of bed that she wants to get busy. May I say to you that some women, that's their calling, Christian women. And there are others that have an outside ministry. They teach Bible classes, child evangelism, work in the church. And because your neighbor doesn't work in the church, friend, doesn't mean that she's not serving the Lord. And because these women working outside don't work in their home more, doesn't mean they're not serving the Lord by any means. And so it's the town of Mary, but it was the home, actually, of Martha, And will you notice, it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. In other words, John is identifying this home for us by telling us this. We'll visit that home ourselves later, and it's a wonderful home to visit. Now, will you notice, therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, Behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. This is an humble home. We know that. Poor folks' home, please. And this is a story that's just filled with tenderness and sweetness. And will you notice that this man Lazarus is also identified? He's the one Jesus loved. Well, what about Paul? (laughs) Well, Paul said he loved me. And what about John? John said he loved us, and Peter said that he loved us. And by the way, he loves you, and he loves me. So it can be said today, the one whom thou lovest is sick. And that's a child of God anywhere. And notice, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified. Now, Jesus was not present at the time. He was away. And he tells his disciples, though, he says, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. In other words, it's interesting to note that these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, This miracle's performed for the glory of God. Now, will you notice verse 5? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
He loved the whole family, loves your family, friend. And I don't care whether you're a Christian or not. He loves you. You can't keep him from loving you, but you sure can put up an umbrella to keep the love of God from entering your life. You can't keep the sun from shining, but you sure can put up an umbrella and get out of the sunshine. Now, will you notice? I'm reading now verse 6. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Now, he did that deliberately and purposely. And sometimes he lets one of his own die. <laughs> when his own dies, really, he's just calling him home. That's all. He's just saying, come on home now. And Lazarus died. But this is all for a purpose. All this is written for you and me. We might believe. Now he says, verse 7, "...then after that saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again." Don't miss that again. He'd been there. He'd had to withdraw because of the opposition. Now he has returned. And will you notice, "...his disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again?" And he's going again. Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there's no light in him. Now, what is he saying here? And very candidly, I personally think he's saying something here that's quite wonderful. And that is that as long as he's in the world, he'll be the light of the world. And he came as the light of the world. And... If there's to be light in Bethany in the time of death, Jesus must be there. Therefore, he said, that's the reason we're going, because while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And it's daytime now, and the night's coming when no man can work. Tremendous statement he's making here. Now, he goes on to say, but if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth because there's no light in him. He doesn't want these sisters to be hopeless and helpless. So he's going to them. Now, verse 11, "...these things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may wake him out of sleep." What he's talking about is death. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep." He shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking rest in sleep. Now, you see, Christ waited that he might raise Lazarus from the dead. And the disciples misunderstood now what Christ meant by sleep. And a great many misunderstand today. Death for a believer has a new name. It's been robbed of its terror, and the sting is gone. And resurrection always refers to the body, you see. And it's the body that is put to sleep. It's the body that is raised. And death for a believer is asleep as far as the body is concerned. But sleep never refers to the soul or the spirit of man. There's no such thing as soul sleep, therefore. And it's the body that dies. It's the body that is going to be raised from the dead. You see, the word for resurrection is anastasis. means to stand up. 
And as C.S. Lewis, that brilliant Oxford don, ridiculed the liberal, he said, when a spirit stands up, what position does he get in? That's one for you to work over, by the way. And resurrection means the standing up, and it always refers to the body. Soul never dies. Therefore, the soul never sleeps. Death is a reality, and it's an awful reality. It's of the body. And death means separation, and it means the body of the believer goes into the grave, and that body's put to sleep because it's going to be raised one of these days. But the individual goes to be with Christ, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, the resurrection is a reality. Buddhism talks about the resurrection of the soul. Some of the isms today talk about it. Now, my friend, whether you are saved or lost, you're going into eternity. And a great many today would like to believe death is extinction. As a man said to me here in Pasadena, he said, you know, when you die, you're just like a dog. I said, don't you wish that was true? But I said, if it's not true, and I think that bothers you a little, you're in trouble, aren't you? Well, he said, we'll not talk about that. No, I don't want to talk about that, friends, because it's an awful reality. Now, will you notice our Lord makes very clear what he meant by sleep. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought he'd spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And that's the awful stark reality that comes to life in life today. It's quite interesting that when Nasser died, you'll recall the great grief of the Arab world. And they said, Nasser is dead. Gamal, Gamal, what will we do now? And so immediately the leadership, they had no hope to offer the people, but they said this, don't grieve for Nasser, he's dead. And believe me, he was. But his ideas... And his theories are still alive, and they'll live on. What a hope. That's not much of a hope, is it? But that was the only hope they have. Miss McGee and I were in Wichita, Kansas, in a Bible conference, and staying at a very large and very fine motel there. And when that football team took off on that Friday, and then word came in that afternoon that one of the planes was down, and the first-string football players were in it, and the coach, and they'd all been killed. It was quite interesting. At the motel in the bar room, they had what they call a happy hour. Oh, it was a happy hour, they called it. And when we would come in of an afternoon to get ready for the evening service, while we would hear, oh, my, the noise that was coming out of the happy hour place. You know that evening? Well, I thought we were in a morgue when we walked in the place. And then when we went in the dining room to eat, we could overhear conversation. Tragedy. Yes, it was a tragedy. But no hope, friends. No hope. Lazarus is dead. And someday those words will be probably brought to you about a loved one. What about your hope? What about your relationship to God today? Do you have any hope at all? Now he says, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, 
let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Oh, Thomas is a gloom caster, isn't he? He thinks that he's going to die also. But thank God he was willing to, I think very much like Simon Peter, when they came right down to it. Simon Peter denied the Lord, and I think Thomas would have too. I don't think his human nature's any better than Simon Peter's, and ours is not any better either. But for the grace of God, we had denied. And when you hear today of the failure of a Christian, and the other day I heard about another preacher walked out of the pulpit and he said, I'm through, I'm through. How tragic it is to see men falling by the wayside, churches falling by the wayside, turning away from the faith. They once stood for something, but no longer. You will recall that the Lord Jesus delayed his coming to Bethany and the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, actually waiting for Lazarus to die. And now he's on the way there, and Thomas tells the other disciples, let us go, we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. That's verse 17. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off. Very frankly, I think I'd be able to make that trip by foot. I walked around that area. I didn't walk exactly from Bethany over to Jerusalem, but it would be a nice little walk, but not bad at all. And we're told here in verse 19, "...and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house." Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Actually, she's rebuking him. Why didn't he come on? In other words, he delayed two days. And now she says, if you'd just only been here, my brother had not died. She reveals a wonderful faith, but also an impatience and a lack of bending to the will of God. Whereas I believe Mary although she, I think, concurred with Martha in this, she was willing to sit at home, and this woman learned to sit at Jesus' feet. Now, we find in verse 22, "...but I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee." In other words, she has just a faint glimmer of faith that he can raise the dead. Now, he had raised the dead before, but even only a glimmer, you couldn't say that she had real faith. She said, I just know that whatsoever you ask of God. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, this woman believed in the resurrection. She was a believer. Now, notice verse 25. And 26, this is another one of the great statements of our Lord. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. 
Actually, what does he mean? He that believeth in me, though he were dead. Well, that's spiritual death. That is the thing that he's talking about here, that though he's spiritually dead, he shall live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And now he looks to the future, and that the one that has trusted him shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. This was the testimony, you'll recall, of Simon Peter. And it's a very important testimony at this particular time. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly, came unto him. Now, Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. When she heard he was coming, she went out to meet him. And there are quite a few roads that go by Bethany, even today. If you go down to Jericho, you take the road and go right by old Bethany there. Still a few people living there. Now I'm reading verse 31. The Jews then, which were with her in the house, and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Had not died my brother is actually the way it should be, because in the Greek, that which is important is put first. My brother had not died, you see. And that is the thing that she's emphasizing. Had not died my brother. And again, she's now in sympathy with Martha in this. If you'd only been present. Now, that's one of the reasons that the Lord Jesus will say a little later, it's expedient for you that I go away. It's better, he said, for me to go away, for me to leave. And one of the reasons is made obvious right here. Had he been here in the flesh, continued here in the flesh, why, if he were today in your town, wherever you're listening, he couldn't be here with us. And if he's here with us today, he couldn't be with you out yonder listening in, so that it'd be impossible for him to be at every place at the same time. But he says, it's expedient for you that I go away. If I go not away, why, the Holy Spirit will not come, the Comforter. But if I go, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, and he'll be everywhere, you see. He's where you are today, and he's where I am today. And he's on the other side of the world in India. Everywhere there are believers, he indwells them today. Now, will you notice verse 33? When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. In other words, if you want to know how God feels about the death of your loved ones, look at this. He groaned in his spirit, he's troubled. Death is a frightful thing, actually. And you can be sure of one thing, that he enters into sympathy with you. But you see, his sympathy is for the living. Actually, was not for the dead, because he knew what he's going to do. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Come and see. 
And then we read on the way out, Jesus wept. And this is the way God feels at your funeral. He joins you in shedding tears, by the way, but not for the loved one that's in Christ, because it's far better to go and be with Christ, but for you in your loss. Death is not a pleasant thing. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. I think the Jews missed it here. Behold how he loved them. That is, how he loved the living that were there that were weeping. Now, and some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? And you see, they go back to that incident of the opening of the eyes of the blind. That apparently made a profound impression upon Jerusalem and all the surrounding area, you see, if that had not been true. Now, Jesus, therefore, again groaning himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Now, notice this byplay here. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. You see, decay had set in in the body. That's what happens to our bodies. And I don't care what the undertakers do to it today, friends. Oh, they made death a very pleasant little episode today. And I don't mean to be critical of undertakers, because they've been my friends. I've worked with them for years. But very frankly, let's face up to it, that you can't cover up death by embalming and painting up the face and putting a suit of clothes on it putting it in a nice coffin and putting flowers on around it. Now, somebody says, don't you think that should be done? Yes, I do, because it softens the shock. But if you want to know the truth, death is an awful thing. Let's face up to it. This is what happens to the body, but the individual, whether he's saved or lost, has moved out of that body. The saved, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou should see the glory of God. You remember he said this would be for the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it that they may believe that thou hast sent me. He didn't need to pray this prayer. I need to pray, but he didn't need to pray this prayer. He did this for the benefit of those that were there to help their faith. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And that was always his method when he raised the dead. And I want to add this, that there were not just three or four that are mentioned in the Gospels that were raised from the dead. There were, I think, multitudes. We said that not just a few blind, but probably hundreds. And there were great many people that had been raised from the dead. And notice this, "...and he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto him, Loose him and let him go." Have you noticed the difference between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus? And when you see the contrast and the difference, you'll see that this was merely a restoration 
to the life in the old body. We call it a resurrection. But when Jesus came forth from the dead, he left those grave clothes and he left that napkin wrapped about his head. He just came right up out of it. Why? Because he came out in a glorified body. And they didn't need to roll away the stone for Jesus to come forth. They needed to roll away the stone to let those outside on the inside. That was the reason that stone was rolled away. It wasn't rolled away to let him out at all. That is something that we need to see. Remember, he came right into the room, and the door was locked, and he came right into where they were. Now, notice the result of this. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, they believed on him. They believed on him. And some of them, now notice this, some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things had done. Now, as I suggested at the very beginning, you see, these men were pretty close by, just simply because of the fact that this is something that didn't make those believe in that day. And I want to say now that through this miracle, he's making his last public appearance before his death. This will be his last public appearance. Now, this may be in the very nature of it a surprise to some of you to learn that we've now come to the end of the public ministry of Jesus. When you realize that we're not near the end of the gospel of John, that could be quite a shock to you. But we're just about to the halfway mark, a little past it maybe, midway in the gospel. And now we at the termination of his public ministry which began when John the Baptist marked him out as the Lamb of God. So that when we begin chapter 13 through to the end, we are in the last week of his ministry. In fact, the last few days, yea, we are in the last day before his death. And John, you see, spends almost as much time on the last 48 hours of our Lord before the cross as he does on the first 32 years and 11 months and three weeks and five days of his life. In fact, this is the pattern shared by all the gospel writers. They place the emphasis on the last eight days. Look at this statement, and this is a compelling statement, friends, and it's something that's worth noting. There are 89 chapters in the four gospels. There are four chapters of the first 30 years of the life of Christ. There are 85 chapters of the last three years of the life of Christ. And of those 85 chapters, 27 of those chapters deal with the last eight days of his life. About one-third of the Gospels deal with the last few days, and the emphasis is on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ upon the cross and the empty tomb. Now, where do you think they're putting the emphasis? They're putting the emphasis upon the death and resurrection of Christ. I suppose you were telling me about a trip you'd made to Washington, D.C. And I asked you, well, how did it impress you? Well, you would tell me that you went around into the city of Washington and just very casually, you tell me about the crowded conditions of the hotels and the traffic that is there. And you very casually tell me about the government buildings 
that you went into the great museum there, and that you went through the Capitol, and you saw the Senate and the House, but you just barely touched on it. And you said that you went up in the Washington Monument and casually mentioned that. You went over to the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson Memorial. You saw the grave of the unknown soldier. And then you began to tell me about your trip to the White House. And you spend about two-thirds of your time telling me about the trip that you made to the White House. You see, I'd misrepresent you if somebody asked me, well, what sort of a trip did so-and-so have to Washington? And I'd say to you, my, they sure did enjoy going into the department stores there. I'd misrepresent you. Friends, you misrepresent the Bible if you don't put the emphasis upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. You see, the gospel writers did what Paul later on did. Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, let's tie this last public appearance of Jesus with the raising of Lazarus. Now, you'd think the raising of Lazarus would have convinced the most dubious of men. It did not. You'd think this crowning miracle should have turned the skeptical to Jesus. It did not. Our Lord had said previously, you remember in the parable, He said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. That's in the parable about the beggar named Lazarus. Now, notice again verse 45. Many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But notice, but some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Oh, it's just around the hill to Jerusalem. And some of these, they weren't convinced. They just wanted to go and blab and tattle and tell the Pharisees. That's what they were interested in. You see, that's the reason, friend, that God does not rend the heavens and come down. And that's the reason today he's not performing miracles. After the church leaves the earth, during the great tribulation period, And into the millennium, there'll be great miracles performed. But that's not going to convince anyone. You see, if in a quiet way you cannot trust him when the mob and the majority turn from him, then you do not have faith at all. The great many people say, well, the crowd hasn't gone after Jesus. No, they never did. But he died and was buried and rose again from the dead. And that's the gospel. And you can believe that, friends. And don't tell me that you need a miracle. The problem is not with the evidence we have today. The problem is the unbelief of man. That's where the problem really is. Now, you see, this brought the bloodhounds of hate on his trail again. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we For this man doeth many miracles. Now, don't miss that, friend. Now, this is a statement from the enemy. The enemy said, He doeth many miracles. So when I've made this statement again and again, when we've been in the Gospels, that the Lord Jesus performed literally hundreds, yea, even thousands of miracles that are not recorded, that I'm not exaggerating. 
he doeth many miracles. You see, they were not in the favorable position of denying he performed miracles he had. (laughs) And you've got to get in a seminary today, one of these liberal seminaries, to be able to deny Jesus performed miracles. But may I say, you're running to cover when you do that. You couldn't have done it in the days of the Pharisees, and they were his enemies. Now, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Now, the thing they feared about Jesus was that there would be a great mass turning to him, and that there would be revolution, and that Rome would pounce upon them. In other words, they moved from a basis of fear. That was the thing that motivated them in what they did. They are afraid. And that is the thing that's keeping a great many people away from Jesus today. Why, even in our churches with its little cliques, there's some that haven't the intestinal fortitude to stand on their two feet for what is right and for Jesus Christ. And for those who teach the Word of God, they just sit there like a dumb dog, my friend. They don't even bark to warn at all. Now, will you notice, and one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest, that same year said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. This was a strange thing here. And thus spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. But you see, they are rationalizing it and say, well, he should die rather than the nation die and Rome come upon us, you see, and put us to death, which they did, by the way, in 70 A.D. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that are scattered abroad. This is a remarkable prophecy, given the gift of prophecy, because he was high priest that year. Now, then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. This is the beginning of the end, actually, friends. That is exactly what is taking place at this particular time. They are now planning to put him to death. This is his last, actually, public appearance. And Jesus, therefore, walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness, into the city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. If they won't believe Moses, why, they will not believe, though one be raised from the dead. Now, we come to that which is the last week, and the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. This is the breaking point. This is the end. And we'll see that he comes up into a home. We'll visit the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then we have the marvelous upper room discourse that he gave to his own.